the guys from Ping, they've kind of shown me how much the equipment matters. I just love that I can hit any shot I kind of want. We're going to be able to tell some fun stories about what goes on here to help golfers play better golf. Welcome back to the Pink Proving Grounds podcast. I am Shane Bacon, joined as always by Marty Jertson. We've got an exciting guest today, Marty, a guy that has spent his life dedicated to fitness and improvement in terms of golf. Mike, we got a lot of questions for you today, so hope you're prepared. Mike Carroll, Marty, a buddy of yours. Yeah, Mike and I go back a little ways. Is kind of helped me along my own personal journey uh, to get, as Mike's brand is, fit for golf, so to speak. But I think more importantly, get fit for life. And I look forward to chatting, Mike. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me, guys. I'm excited to chat. Mike, how did you get into this world? How did you get into like the improvement world of people's, not just health, as Marty said, but kind of life improvement? Um, I was always very interested in health and fitness growing up, like very kind of sporty and active household. And I studied sports and exercise science in university in Ireland. And when that was uh, finished, my kind of thing that I went into basically was personal training and strength and conditioning. So for anyone who doesn't know, strength and conditioning is basically the same thing as personal training, except rather than trying to help the general population, you know, get, you know, maybe a little bit leaner and in better general shape, strength and conditioning is how you can help athletes improve their physical conditioning for a particular sport. Um, So I have a background in both, which is definitely helpful. And after a while, just decided that I'd try and pursue it down the golf avenue because it was pretty interesting, pretty niche. um, And it wasn't really, I guess, being done from what I could see to a particularly high level and just sort of kind of gathered momentum from there, basically. Mike, were you a golfer? I mean, I know on your own personal journey, it's been fun to watch you, uh, quote unquote, kind of chasing scratch, so to speak, in your own personal golf game. But you talked about that that moment you decided to pursue it in golf. Were you an avid golfer at that time or kind of casual golfer? And then on this journey, you kind of transitioned to being more, more avid, more serious about your own game. Yeah, so when I decided to try and go down let's say the strength and conditioning route for golf as a coach. It was actually after I'd had a spell where I played a reasonably, you know, serious amount of golf as a teenager. But kind of my last year of, we call it secondary school in Ireland, it would be high school here. I actually stopped playing golf kind of out of frustration more than anything else. Uh, But I was also playing a lot of other sports. So I concentrated on one of them in particular uh, called Gaelic football through Mm my last year in in high school and I played it through college uh, a little bit with the college but more with kind of my home club and then when I finished my studies I started playing golf again I was now working full-time and you know didn't have say studies taking up my time so I started playing a little bit of golf again after about a five-year break and what was kind of really cool is that even though I hadn't been playing golf at all I'd been training really hard in the gym um, like I put on about 25 or 30 pounds in college through strength training. And as soon as I got back playing, it was, you know, really noticeable, like how much more speed and power was there, even though I hadn't really been trying. Yeah. And then when I started working with basically more people, um, some of them just happened to be recreational golfers. And I started thinking, this is something that I'd like to sort of push a bit more. And then kind of the, I guess the big turning point was there was really two of them. In 2014, I did the TPI level one education course. Yep. Uh, I traveled to the Belfry in England, actually with uh, Simon Keelan, who's Seamus Powers caddy. He's a friend of mine nice. from home. And when I came back from that, I that's when I set up the brand name Fit for Golf, started marketing uh, basically training services for golfers. And about a year and a half later, I moved to California to take up a job with Mike Hansen, who owns a facility called Hansen Fitness for Golf in Irvine, California. And funnily enough, uh, it was on Twitter where I saw he listed a job that TPI retweeted for him. And I got in touch with him and told him I'd be interested. And long story short, in October of 2016, I moved over to California from Cork in Ireland and started working for him. Mike, 
we as golfers, you kind of get to the winter months. Uh, I know Marty doesn't deal with this in Arizona. I, I miss those days for goodness <laughs> sakes, but you know, I live in Connecticut. I mean, we are, we are narrowing down the last few days of a golf season, if at all. And then you focus on kind of doing things indoors. What's the number one thing you feel like golfers maybe miss or don't focus on in terms of their fitness that you feel like is the most important thing golfers should spend their time on when they're trying to get maybe get better or maybe improve their uh, their overall well-being? It's funny. So because my background is obviously saying physical training and more making gym programs and things like that, people are always assuming I'm going to tell them like some exercises, like, you know, squats or push-ups or whatever. Do a hundred crunches, but, you'll be dialed, right? <laughs> but I think, I honestly, I think where people kind of miss the boat the most in the winter months is going months without swinging a club. Mm. Because all all fitness is very, very specific to the demands of the activity you're doing. So... If you go months without swinging a club, you're going to be getting deconditioned to that specific activity or stress. So then when you come back out as the weather gets a bit better, which is typically master's, master's weekend for, for, for most people, <laughs> you could have five or six months or whatever of not swinging a club. So even if you've stayed in, in generally good shape from you know whatever type of workouts you've been doing, it's not the same. Um, you'll be in a much better state than if you hadn't been doing anything. But that would be my big thing to people is try and find some way to keep swinging the club even a couple of times per week. I know that's challenging in certain locations where, you know, there's snow on the ground outside or whatever. But even if it means a shortened club inside um, or even if you need to maybe simulate it, you know, holding basically anything like a light medicine ball or like I have... um, a cut down, you know, really old club that I've brought with me traveling a couple of times. If I know I'm not going to be, you know, on a range or playing golf. And it, it definitely, definitely is uh, the number one thing I would say. Mike, when, when you talk about timing, I mean, you, you mentioned speed, right? And, and speed and players improving club head speed and being able to hit the ball at longer distances. I mean, it's a big thing in golf, but I'd say it's a relatively new age thinking I mean, you know, I mean, you think about what you're doing, you think about what Marty has done so well with the stack system. I mean, a lot of this stuff kind of coming together at the right time makes a lot of sense for somebody like you in this business. Because I think 20 years ago, if you'd have been floating around some ideas of you need to swing it faster, you would have got instructors coming around going, no, 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 no. You got to hit fairways. You got to get the ball in play. Those are the important aspects of golf. And it feels like that's changed a bit. Yeah, well, I think the person, it's it's off, It's funny when someone asks me what I do for work and I'm explaining it to them, often they'd say, like, it's Tiger. You have to thank for that. And to a certain extent, I would say yes. Who I actually think I have to thank more is Mark Brody because he's yeah. the one who was able to put, like, numerical value on gaining distance. Interesting. And once that came out, these analytics, there was no more, you know, really debate about the value of it. And I think before that, it was really easy for people just to have strong opinions and they could, you know, bring up examples of, well, this player doesn't hit it long and X. But once, uh, you know, Dr. Brody was able to put numerical value and then also when the PGA Tour got shot link. So now we have like ball speed metrics, distance metrics, strokes gained off the tee. Well, that's really when things you know, you now you can give like objective feedback to players. Hey, look at these guys' ball speeds. Look at their earnings. Look at these guys' ball speeds. Look at their earnings. And when you can almost like show a player, hey, this is like potentially what X amount of ball speed is worth in dollars per year, that obviously gets people interested, you know? Yeah, Shane, I think that's uh, Mike brings up a really good point now that we can just put those numbers at. Yep. At decisions here. So like in our pink in pink co-pilot, we do that on club fitting. We could try a longer driver totally. relative to more traditional length. We can use that club compare and apply those strokes gained metrics with a lot of nuance. It allows you to get right into the nuance of what's more important, distance accuracy. Mike, I wanted to ask you about your work with a couple you work with a couple of our 
our tour players, uh, Mackenzie Hughes, Seamus Power, Stefan Yager. How do you approach those three players uh, in creating their individual training programs? And what are some of the different priorities that you've you've placed with the three of them? Is it kind of a you know core strength? Is it speed improvement, injury prevention, injury recover, recovery? Maybe a mix of all three. How have you, how have you tackled those three individual players? Yeah, so it depends a little bit on what the player asks you when they get in touch, because essentially you're serving them. So, you know, even though, say, my area of particular interest is speed, if some if a PGA Tour player contacts me and says, hey, look, I'm hap- I'm pretty happy with my speed, but if I play three or four weeks in a row, my the right side of my lower back starts giving me trouble. Like, what's mm. going on here? That's a slightly different, um, let's say, job, essentially, to someone who says, Mike, I'm at 170, I need to get to 176, or I can't get to where I want in the world rankings. Yeah, There's usually a little bit of overlap. Um, Like with those three guys, with McKenzie, it was pretty straightforward in that he didn't have any injury concerns. Uh, He had a pretty good understanding and background in training, but he felt he wasn't getting as much out of his training as he should. He wanted to make sure that the effort he was putting in to his physical training was going to show up in speed potential. Yeah. With Seamus, he is a guy who had a lot of speed. Um, He contacted me really because he felt like he was possibly doing too much training. Okay. And it was starting to interfere with how much energy he had for practice and play. Hmm. It's something that you need to be careful with as a trainer because... You want to feel like that what you're doing is making a difference and it's easier for you to demonstrate that with improvements in physical training metrics. But if it's not enhancing the player's skill or their scores, like you're you're in trouble, you know. The the training needs to stay as a supplement to their golf practice and play. It can't it can't take over. And Steven was actually probably the most interesting one because when when I started working with him, he was 210th in strokes gained off the tee. He was losing a full stroke around. And he probably won't mind me saying it. Uh, <laughs> but on our first phone call, I, I can remember him saying to me, Mike, I'm short and crooked, which is no good out here. He said, I might as well try and hit it further. And if I stay crooked, it's better. Uh, but Marty, is you kind of you know i think would be in agreement with and i've noticed with players of different skill levels oftentimes when players are short and crooked there's a lot of constraining going on there's maybe some mental baggage where players are you know if it starts going sideways we can start to rein it back in because we're worried about where it's going and it's almost like a vicious cycle because it can get worse the more and more kind of scared you get so his big thing was like i want to try and get faster and, and how do i do this so What was interesting with Steven is that I would say that the, let's say, gym side of things that we did was way less important than just the practice he did with driver, focusing on essentially getting into the mindset of I'm not holding back and I'm I'm going to hit it further. And like we talked about the value of metrics, like if you're practicing with a launch monitor and you're getting feedback on literally every single drive in terms of strokes gained from your rounds. Yep. Very quickly, you can see how the trends are going. And what's been amazing with him, and this this wouldn't happen with, with every case for sure, but he's about 1.1 strokes per round better off the tee uh, since we started working together. And he's he's gained about five miles an hour in ball speed. And he's actually hitting slightly more fairways. and. As I said, it wouldn't happen with everybody, but it was literally a case of let's start swinging faster because I'm already crooked. <laughs> and I think it was because there was, you know, some probably like mental baggage maybe when things aren't yeah. going well. Then as he started swinging faster, started hitting it straighter, then his confidence goes up, you start swinging harder again because you're like, man, this is awesome. Uh, and that was a big turnaround for him. And then with Mackenzie and Seamus... Um, Like gains haven't been as sudden and as big, which is more what you'd expect because Steven's example was, you know, pretty kind of, um, I would say, exceptional in terms of of how quickly it went up. With McKenzie, what's been interesting is we've had some um, kind of like valleys and lows 
where there's been periods where the speed has been going really good and then it might come back down. And that's where it's a little bit, say, tough as a trainer because you don't want to be overstepping bounds in terms of like what type of input you're giving because you're kind of getting away from the physical training realm. But uh, what what you're kind of trying to make sure of, I guess, is are they in the place physically where they want to be? And the, the two big ones there are that they're comfortable with where their, let's say, speed is, and also that they have plenty of energy to practice and play, mm-hmm. and they're not dealing with aches and pains. Um, and that, that's probably the most, I would say, stressful or challenging part of the job is if players are picking up aches and pains and injuries, that's almost, it's, it's part and parcel of pro golf because they practice and play so much. But that's when you feel like that you might be failing at your job. Like if, if I'd much prefer for one of the players to say, Mike, my speed is down three miles an hour. What's going on? Like, are you sure this is the right training program for me? That's fine. Like you'll, you'll be able to kind of tweak things there or have a discussion through it. But if one of the players is telling you like, hey, like, man, my shoulder or my hip is sore. Like I, I can't practice you know that's when you feel like okay this is this is not where we want to be let's uh let's review here mike it's so much information to process on your end i mean you get a player coming your way and they're saying i want to improve x y and z or i want to change my workout or i'm not sure why my back's hurting i mean it feels like as you're discussing this it feels like you're the trainer but you're also a bit of a doctor and at times you might be a psychiatrist I mean this is a lot of things that you're having to kind of deal with when you're kind of taking on a high level athlete like this to figure out the perfect setup for that person because not every setup not every plan um, you know not everything you're writing out is going to be the same player to player yeah it's a really good point and I think it's where there's actually room for maybe even top level golfers to get better uh, no, obviously, I don't have um, insight into what all of the top guys are doing. But, you know, I've had maybe like four or so years experience of kind of being on or around the PGA Tour with with players and, you know, talking to caddies and managers and coaches or whatever. Yeah. And something that I kind of brought up a couple of times is that, like, let's say if you come out of college as an exceptionally good baseball or basketball or football player and you sign a professional contract with whatever franchise like you're brought into the ecosystem of that franchise where like somebody's job is going to be, let's say, high performance manager, where they're monitoring like, okay, what's Shane doing like this week in terms of on-field practice, gym practice? Uh, Is he going sitting down with the sports psychologist or whatever, you know? But if you turn pro in golf and you get a PGA Tour card, like there's, there's no necessity or there's no let's say, set system that all these players follow. It's on them, Mike. I mean, it's on them to, to, to track it down. I mean, you're talking about like Victor Wimbanyama right now, who's obviously been kind of the story of the NBA. There are, I'm assuming, employees of the San Antonio Spurs that's job is to make sure Victor is eating, working out, resting, flying, whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. properly. And if you're Ludwig Aberg and you turn professional, there's nobody that's just being assigned to you. You have to go track that down yourself. Exactly. And where I think golf is probably in a maybe a time where things are shifting a little bit is that like there's no question that you can now and definitely in the past be a world-class tour-level golfer without doing anything for your physical training because we've seen that down through the generations. But as the sport evolves and everything gets more professional, there's bigger money, there's a bigger pool of athletes trying to make it, these smaller margins make, you know, become much more important. So kind of what I've noticed, maybe that's lacking in, even at the PGA Tour level, is almost just like organization and management. For example, like, let's just say if a player gets injured, it's like, who is he going to for advice? Like, where, like whose whose job is it to make sure that like he's sent to let's just say the right people for an examination and diagnosis? Because like an example is like um, there's a there's a physio truck on the tour, right? So like these guys are great, but like they're busy. They they've got 156 players in an event, yeah. and if Marty, you go into them on a Tuesday and you're like, 
hey, you know, Tom, my back is sore. They might be thinking like, I've never met Marty before. I don't know if he's going to come back. All I know is that he wants to tee it up on Thursday. Yeah. Whereas if you have, you know, a manager that you're reporting this to and their job is, okay, like, what are we going through here to make sure all the right protocols are ticked? And I think you can apply that to basically like every element of performance. If you link it back to like Shane, what you were saying about, um, you know, the NBA franchise having these different departments where basically things are monitored and managed at a pretty big level, because you need to remember, like these golfers are like the world's best at what they do. And if something means even slight improvement or it means that an injury doesn't take quite as long to recover from or they're not out for quite as long you know that's more chance to say playing events where you can build up FedEx points and you know we know from watching a golf season how granular at the end of a year things can be in terms of different cutoffs for keeping cards or getting into particular events yeah definitely Mike so to, to answer your question there Shane what that probably means is like one of my jobs is when I get information from players is sometimes telling them I, I'm not the guy to answer that question. Like, I, I don't know exactly why your back or wrist is sore. And what I suggested, you know, if it's been dragging on for too long now, you need to go and see a specialist in this area, like find out where in your city, who the best guy to go to is, or I find out who that person is and try and send them there basically. But that wouldn't happen if I was working for a basketball organization. You know, that would right. be all in-house and taken care of. So I think that's where things might, you know, have room to improve over time. Mike, I think one thing fun about uh, about your, your journey is uh, we've talked about your work with uh, PGA Tour players, which has been, sounds like quite fun. You've learned a lot there, but you have, through your app, Fit for Golf app, the ability to connect design programs for any golfer out there. Uh, which is quite fun. And I think it, I kind of liken it a little bit to what I try to do at Ping is, yeah, we work with the tour players, but we need, we need to pass along our solutions to the everyday golfer. Tell us a little bit uh, about what that looks like um, in terms of you know, your, your golf community that has had success training with your app. What, is, what are some differences there uh, between training the tour player, which we just talked about, uh, and the everyday golfer, you know, they, they don't have as much time available. How much time do they need to get on one of your programs? What's the minimum amount of time per week? What, what does that look like, Mike? Yeah. So kind of how the fit for golf app came about was from training people for basically multiple years, you kind of start noticing patterns. Like these people coming in are of very similar profiles. Like you have, let's say your, your older golfers, you might have, you're kind of busy working moms or dads, and then you might have your aspiring golfers. And while there is definitely some individual differences, there's a lot of similarities. And mm -hmm. if you're trying to work with people in person all the time, like you can't, you can't deal with, you know, thousands of people. So yeah. sort of my idea was, why don't I build out these templates that I tend to work off day in and day out for the last number of years and try and make them accessible to basically thousands of golfers that they can use in their own time. Um, because a lot of these golfers, they don't have access to, you know, a professional in their area that can basically provide them with that service. And to be honest, if they do, it's often very expensive. Mm -hmm. So how I started was essentially just, I would write a program and for each exercise in the program, just trying to think of regressions and progressions. So like Shane mentioned, say, like squatting earlier as an off-season exercise, like it's that's something that I would say is pretty universally good for people to do, barring some, you know, uh, major injury that doesn't allow them to do so. I'm probably going to want most golfers I work with to squat or something similar because it's really good for lower body strength and power, which is beneficial for producing speed and potentially reducing injury. If I have somebody who's never worked out before is maybe carrying a lot of excess weight and they have some reservations about exercising, they might be doing a squat where they're holding onto a countertop to assist them going down where they can use their arms to offload themselves a little bit 
or you might see people doing holding like a trx strap or something like that so like they're not even squatting against all of their body weight Mm. whereas if it is a d1 college golfer who's just had four years of working with a strength and conditioning staff and they're like mike i'm at 115 speed but i think if i can get to 121 like i'm gonna have a huge advantage well now you're starting to deal with things where you know you might be squeezing the sponge a little bit more dry and you're probably still gonna have them do some sort of squat but their squat might turn into like they might be doing a squat jump holding 50 pound dumbbells or something like Mm. that you know so very similar movement pattern a very similar let's say adaptation you're looking for but you just meet them where they are um i guess kind of like club fitting marty you know it's like i have a kind of picture of what i want this person to be able to do but like this driver is going to work for you know your kid (laughs) that's just after finishing college whereas this might be for granddad kind of thing you know it's, it's basically the same idea and just just scaling from there um and I think where people, especially I would say like with, it's hypocritical because like my business is on social media and my job is to try and garner people's attention so I can sell my programs. <laughs> but I think it's become more common to to try and convince people that they might have problems that are unique to them that other people don't have. And as a solution, there's some very highly specialized exercise or program that's perfect for them which i just don't really agree is the case like even if you go through as thorough a screening or assessment protocol as you want like training is still really a little bit of trial and error getting started you basically just start on the conservative side with something you think is probably a little bit too easy was that okay yeah perfect okay let's try the next level was that okay Okay, great. And after doing that a couple of times, it's sort of like a Goldilocks principle. You get into the sweet spot where you want to be. And then from there, it's just slowly progressing. And then what's been a big part of it is like literally replying to people's questions that they send in through the app. Like, hey, like how do I modify this exercise because I fell skiing last week and my knee is killing me? Or uh, this where I work out doesn't have this piece of equipment. Like, what can I do instead? You know, that's that's kind of where I would say, like, the individual individualization has come is just answering questions for people. Mike, what's a big misconception people have about fitness and golf? What's something that when you talk to newbies to the gym, what's something that you feel like most people maybe don't understand or almost always approach you that's wrong? What's the time limit on this podcast? <laughs> we can go. We got, we got plenty of time. I don't have to pick up my kids for another hour and a half. Let's go. Um, I think there's two that stand out like above all else. Number one is that lifting is going to hurt you. Like there's, there's definitely an assumption out there in some circles that like lifting equals injury. And I think it's it's like any other type of physical activity. If you do too much too soon, literally if that's walking, if you build up your steps if you build up your step count too quickly, like you're <laughs> you're gonna get heel and Achilles pain, I promise you. Like go go on a hiking trip unprepared or a long walking trip unprepared, and the most basic of activities, you will start to pick up an injury. It's the same with weight training, but we know from like as much research as you want to look at. It's one of the best things that we can do for maintaining or improving our physical function as we age. And to be honest, like, yeah, I love helping golfers improve their speed, but most, let's say, recreational golfers, like, who really cares if they're at 98 versus 101 miles an hour to a certain extent? But if they're able to be in way better health and physical condition long term, Maybe they can maintain that 98 miles or longer for seven or eight years more in their golfing life. And that's where like strength resistance training becomes really important. Um, and then the other one is, is probably that like strength training or lifting weights is going to lead to reduced flexibility. And people have, you know, the image of the gigantic bodybuilder 
in their head, um, bulging with muscles, saying that, you know, that guy couldn't rotate or couldn't scratch his back, which if you ask them to, they actually probably could. They, they, it just doesn't look that way. But um, there's that, like if you think of doing a, let's say, strength training exercise through as big a range of motion as you can in that particular movement, that's essentially a loaded stretch. Like you can improve your mobility and strength at the same time uh, with resistance training. And they're, they're the two I would say that people are most worried about is that, no, I don't want to get stronger. I just want to get more flexible. Any adult that doesn't lift weights, I would say, actually probably does need to think about getting stronger. Because if you're not, you're just gradually losing muscle mass. And that ends up catastrophic for health over the course of decades. And the added bonus is that you can you can do both at the same time. You can improve flexibility and strength through strength training. And in terms of the other one getting hurt, sure, you can get hurt lifting weights. You can get hurt from doing anything. Like and you and you can get hurt from doing nothing. People wake up with aches and pains, or they hurt themselves picking up the kid's school bag or whatever. You know, um, they're probably the two biggest ones. There's. There's some more that you could dig into. It's it's a long list. And to be honest, I think the reason it's a long list is something that you touched on earlier is that this is quite new in terms of being a thing in golf. Um, and it makes it quite interesting for, say, trying to research and learn from people who are more experienced and, let's say, smarter than you. And I'm by no means saying that I'm the, the smartest or most experienced or best trainer in golf, but... There's very few people have been doing it for a long time or have really been applying like their whole careers to it. So we almost need to go and look for other look to other sports um, for guidance. And I think in golf, by far, the best places we can go are track and field because mm, yeah. those sports, the coach's job is they're given feedback by a tape measure or a stopwatch. And those sports were also in the Olympics. And if a sport is in the Olympics, it's major political bragging rights, which sounds kind of off course, but it means that there's tons of resources pumped into them by countries' governments, yeah. which means that you get exceptionally good coaches. You get lots of research and studies. And if you combine that with the fact that the athletes are getting objective feedback about, hey, how much further did you throw the javelin from this from this training program? Or what exercises had the biggest correlation with this jump height? They're things that can be really, really informative. Whereas when you go into field sports or sports that have a lot of, let's say, more external and variable factors involved, it gets really tough. Like even, for example, the NFL Combine does a bad job of uh, finding which players are going to be the best on the field because there's just there's just so much more to sports where there's millions of things going on you can't boil it down to you know jumping and you know sprinting around cones and things like that but if we take the main thing i would say that you can improve in golf as a trainer like it i think i think for performance wise like if if you take away like okay we don't want them to be injured we want them to be able to make the swings that them and their coaches want to do. But after that, it's really like, how much speed do you have? Like, it, it really is the way things are going. And when that's the case, well, then, like, we're using speed as our feedback test. And now, how are our training programs basically enhancing that? As long as we're keeping the other things line, lined up, basically. Mike, there was so much in there uh, that was so good and so interesting. I think one one of the regrets I've had in my life is probably spending too much time practicing 50-yard wedge shots when I rarely have that shot on the course. And the other one is static stretching. <laughs> I think if I had to go back in time, nowadays I love doing like Jefferson curls and uh, kettlebell windmills. And my hamstring uh, flexibility has improved dramatically and I feel great. What are some other exercises there that you can take to end range to improve your flexibility that you like? Yeah, so a good point there on stretching is that most people think that, let's say, lack of mobility is because of like T 
tissue, let's say muscle tissue, tightness. And they think that by stretching, they're going to elongate that tissue, which doesn't really happen. Like muscle and, and tendon and connective tissue, it's just, it's just too dense and, and too strong, essentially, for that to happen to a, to a great extent. And usually, what's more commonly the reason for a range of motion being restricted is it's something from your brain, your nervous system saying, hey, mm. I'm not comfortable here. Like, let's, let's put on the brakes here. This doesn't feel so good. I've never been here before. I have no strength here before. And don't even think about asking me to do it at high force or high speed because that's not going to go well. So if you're trying to improve range of motion in a certain area, I would say try and do things as much as possible where you are actively moving through that range of motion. So for example, one, a simple one that I think that I think is, is great, like is one of the biggest, uh, let's say complaints you get from golfers is that they're losing flexibility as they get a little bit older and their swing is getting shorter. And they show you these various stretches they're doing, maybe lying on the ground. They might have a towel pulled over a certain part of their leg or something like that. Whereas something that I think is perfect for that is give them a club or a weighted club and tell them, okay, you've got 60 seconds on the clock. And gradually, I want you to make practice swings where you go longer and longer each time. I want you to get uncomfortably, slightly uncomfortably longer with how far you're turning, how far your hands are going. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is way more specific to the demands of the activity that I'm actually trying to get better at. And your brain is also involved. Like you have to contract the muscles that you need to contract to get back to those positions. You need to be in control of all the various joints that are involved. And you're also just getting more comfortable doing it. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with doing static stretching at all. It kind of never uh, discouraged someone from any form of exercise. But all choices we make in, in training basically are a series of trade-offs. Like we have a limited amount of time. And as soon as we have a specific, let's say, goal or activity that we're trying to work on, then just the question is, well, how much is this transferring to what I'm trying to improve based on my opportunity cost, basically, based on the other things I can yeah. be doing? And if you think of what the golf swing is, it's a one-second activity. It's standing on our feet. It's happening very quickly. Like, static stretching is, is tough to give, let's say, a lot of recommendation for when we consider some of the other options that we have. Like, even something as simple as, like, if you stand upright, let's say in like baseball posture or something and hold a, a four or six pound medicine ball at arm's length in front of you, practice rotating as far as you can in each direction. Do something like 10 or 12 reps each side, trying to go as far as you can. Do that a couple of times. Like, I think that's going to be way better than, you know, we see the classic stretch of kind of somebody putting their foot up on a bench and trying to touch their toes or, <laughs> you know, dra dragging their arm across their chest. It's like, hold on a second here. Like, that's that's great. I know it's what everybody has done forever, but let's actually think about what we're what we're trying to improve here, you know? Mike, that was something I'd, I'd written down to ask you was, I mean, we all love the idea of showing up an hour before our tea time and hitting balls and rolling some putts. But the reality is uh, most of us show up 15 minutes before our tea time. And I was going to ask <laughs> you if you had ideas because, you know, what used to be a popular warm-up, if you will, that I feel like's kind of gone away was they, you know, guys would pull out two clubs and swing two clubs like a donut on a baseball bat. And I feel like now it is a lot more of that. I'm going to bend over, touch my toes and try to get ready. Do you have things people could do when they only have 10, 15 minutes to prepare for a tee time and they can't go to the range and hit 60 golf balls? Yeah, so like two sides of the spectrum when the pro guys you brought up are professional golfers, their warm-up is in the gym for about 20 minutes. They go through what's usually termed as like a dynamic warm-up where they'll be doing some exercises for loosening out their hips, their spine, their shoulders, their neck. Then they might do some, let's say, pretty easy bodyweight exercises like squats, lunges, toe touches, but all for reps, no, no holding positions. 
gradually tried to go a bit further, getting warmed up. And then they'll finish their warm up with some, what I would call like explosive or power work. For example, they might do a series, like three sets of five vertical jumps, eight medicine ball slams, and eight medicine ball throws off a wall or something like that. And they feel like that when they go down to the range, they could take out driver and be at full speed on their first swing. The other Mm, reason I like that is if they're playing, let's say five rounds a week, when you include practice rounds or whatever in pro-ams, that's also a little bit of mobility and power work before every round that adds up over the course of months and over course of seasons. Um, Recreational golfers don't have time to do that. Um, What I do, I play first thing in the morning. So like first light, I'm not going to the course early to hit balls. I do like a 10 minute mobility routine at home where I basically go through what I just said there. I'm doing some like hip mobility, some spine mobility, some like squats, lunges, some torso twists. And then I take honestly about 20 practice swings on the first tee with my driver, like two sets of 10. I might do a set of 10 that's pretty easy. Then I do a set of 10 that's pretty hard. And then I'll take like, you know, I'll make sure that I have say like a minute or two to get my heart rate back down to normal. Then I'll take like one or two, let's say, normal practice swings when it's my turn to hit. And like, honestly, that feels fine. Like I get more out of those swings than I think I would doing like any stretches on on the first tee, to be perfectly honest. Mike, do you have that on your website? I mean, is that a, is that a part of part of the site if people it, were going to download it and subscribe? Yeah, I mean, it, do you it, have it free warm up stuff? Yeah, it's 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 the main like daily mobility slash warm up routine. I have tons of free like shortened versions of it um, on my Twitter or Instagram. Um, and I think on my website there's actually a pop up where if you enter your email address you get like a free five minute golf warm up. Um, and it's one that's simple to do at the course because you're standing for all of it and the only equipment you use is a club. Things like leg swings, back and forth, some like pelvis twists, some torso twists. Um, yeah, the, the most important thing I would say for like a good quality warm-up is think about think about moving, like gradually moving through the activity you're about to do. Less Less thinking about stretching out and more thinking about moving through the movement that you're about to do, gradually building up the speed. Like for example, if you're going to do a 40-yard dash, I don't want to see you standing on the side of the track stretching your hamstring. I want to see you do 15 40-yard runs going from slow to medium to fast. Like that's how you prepare for it. Mike, for the listener here, I've thought a lot about this topic and studied this topic. Just the, can you, and I know this could be its own podcast in itself, but the difference between strength training uh, and speed training, uh, you know, uh, the high level, as simple as you can make it. Yeah. So that is, that is definitely like a loaded question. Um, it's honestly one of my like favorite areas to try and dig into and, and I guess get more knowledge in. If we think of someone who wants to be able to develop the ability to swing faster, okay, we want them to have big and strong fast twitch muscle fibers, and we want them to be able to apply the strength they have very quickly. And if you look at those two things, it gets pretty simple why you want to have, let's say, heavy strength training and light load speed training. When we're lifting heavy weights, let's say a weight that we could lift for five reps or less, doesn't matter what the exercise is, because that weight is challenging relative to our strength level, we recruit all of our muscle fibers. There's none that we don't use because we need them all to kick in to help us move the weight. The harder we try and accelerate the weight, the more of our fast switch fibers that we recruit. And one of the beneficial adaptations to heavy resistance training is that we get better at recruiting these fast twitch fibers. And one of the biggest elements of maximum strength is the size of our muscle fibers. So 
with heavy strength training, we learn how to recruit our fast twitch fibers. We learn how to produce more maximum force and these fibers also get bigger. With speed training, something that we get a lot better at is how quickly we can send the signal from our brain to the muscles and get those muscles to contract. And that's why having the balance of both of them is is very, very beneficial. Mm. The kind of Venn diagram of what you want to be really good at is you want to have big, strong muscles from heavy strength training, particularly big, fast-twitch muscle fibers, but they're the ones that tend to grow from strength training anyway. And we want to be really, really good at our muscles applying that force very quickly, which is why... Honestly, the the most important ones to do for golf are specific like speed training with swings because that motor unit firing frequency or ray coding, I think is quite specific to a task, to a movement pattern. So if we can do it through swinging or things that are similar to swinging, it's definitely beneficial. And then kind of over time, what gets important is that when people start strength training, they'll notice like almost a linear increase to club head speed. Like if you get someone and you get them in the gym and they just start like squatting, benching, pull-ups, whatever, the usual stuff, like the five by five programs that are super common and things like that. 100% those people, as their muscles are getting bigger and stronger, and just as importantly, they're getting better at recruiting these fast twitch fibers, they'll be at the range and they'll be like, man, this is sweet. I'm going to be 10 miles an hour faster in no time. I'm only <laughs> I'm only lifting three weeks and I'm like four miles an hour up. This is awesome. Then all of a sudden, the lifting gains stop or massively slow down and so does the transfer to speed. And one of the reasons why that happens is that there is what's called a specificity element to strength training. And what that means is that the transfer that we get from one activity to the other isn't perfect. Some things transfer more, some things transfer less. And as our, let's say, uh, percentage of our potential changes and we get closer to our genetic potential, the amount of transfer we get from things starts to slow down. And that's when training kind of needs to change a little bit if we want to keep improving. Yeah. Like, let's just say, Marty, like you've been told um, the hex bar deadlift, like you said, I know you've done a lot, is really good for helping increase speed potential. But you're after getting to a point where you can, you've spent years developing it. It's hard for you to get stronger at it. And let's say your your max is 400 pounds. Like, think of how much time and effort and fatigue you'd pick up to bring that to like 440. That that might take six months. And during that period, you're never really going to be fresh where you can do speed training sessions or higher higher <laughs> higher speed exercises that are more similar to the swing and might have higher transfer then if we just said marty this strength for now is fine good enough <laughs> we've noticed that like it's not really causing much transfer but hey you've spent very little of your training time working on things like swinging your driver as fast as you can for x number of reps three times per week and yeah. That's a a shift in training that like, I guess I've been seeing more of or trying to think about more of lately because what's become clear is that like the training that works at first does not work forever. And also if you're, as you get more advanced, you can't improve at everything at the same time. The beginner can crush themselves trying to get better at, let's say their heavy strength training. And they can also get better at their faster light stuff. But then if you, you know, go to the other end of the spectrum where it's somebody who's been training for five or 10 years, this is where like the term, say like periodization gets important because I don't want anybody to listen and be like, no, Mike said that we should stop working on strength. We should work on speed. Well, like, no, maybe where you are in your training, let's say career, you should keep working at both of them. And that's what a lot of beginners need to do. Yeah. But let's, for example, you and Shane are like, okay, you've just played uh, a golf season. Yeah. And this happens with the pros and amateurs all the time. 
So you, both of your strength levels are probably down relative to where they have been in the past because you've been busy practicing and playing. But now your off season just started. So I might say, hey, Marty, we can get your strength levels back up to where they were in like six weeks. No, no, no panic. So let's prioritize strength for six weeks. We'll still keep working on your speed so that you're not completely getting away from it. But then for the six weeks before the season, when you want to be getting faster, because you don't care how strong you are in season, you care how what your ball speed is. Yep. So now let's transfer to where we put more of an emphasis on speed. That's where we ramp up the volume. We'll just do a tiny bit of strength to make sure you don't get weaker. Now the season starts, competitive golf is your priority. We'll put both of them on maintenance. And then what we're hoping is, if I'm working with you for two, three, four seasons, is that we're on like a stepwise progression where you are now starting next season's off season at a slightly higher point than you were for the same time last year. And we're just building on it. And then when we go into your speed stuff, you're at a slightly higher level, hopefully, than you were that time last year. And that's kind of the, the goal you're looking for. It's so fascinating, Mike. I mean, again, I, I feel like this is like scratching the surface level stuff with so many people in terms of fitness. But you've mentioned your socials a little bit. Um, obviously, we've mentioned you know the, the app and everything. But could you fill people in on where they can follow you, where they can check out everything that you're doing, subscribe to Fit for Golf? Can you just kind of clue people in on all that? Yeah, so... The two social media uh, platforms are Instagram and Twitter, probably a lot more on Twitter. The handles are the same, at fit underscore four underscore golf. My website is fitforgolf.app and the app is also called uh, the Fit for Golf app. Something important about the app is that for the last seven or eight months, I've been getting a new app built that will be released in January. Um, so there'll be some changes coming there. But anyone who signs up to the current app will transfer to the new one if they if they don't want to wait. Mike, I know what I'm going to do after the call. I'm going to grab my stack system and just go swing in the garage right now. Just make sure you just make sure you warm up. Yeah, warm up. <laughs> I, I'll prepare myself. Uh, yeah. We appreciate this. We got to have you back on at some point and maybe dive into you know getting into the season or mid season things like that. I loved what you said in terms of postseason recovery and trying to maybe figure out plans for the next year. So we'll have you back on soon and, uh, and maybe chat about a different time of the year, but very fascinating stuff. We appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Shane. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure, Marty. Thanks a lot. So interesting, Mike. So much stuff to consume. And like I said, time to go swing it outside. This is the Ping Proving Grounds podcast. Yeah.